Good afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk Law Enforcement. And I have a very special guest on the other end. And uh, Ms. Perez, you there? I'm here. Hey, Kenny, how are you? Hey, how are you? I'm happy we finally got through. And I want to welcome you to the podcast and I appreciate you um, giving me some time. And quickly, I kind of gave out some of your... um, your background on my uh, Instagram and all, but if you can tell the listeners a little bit about you and what, what occurred that day. Cause I gave them some background on, you know, the shooting, but it's nothing like what occurred in your own words. Sure. And I'd like to say, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate you giving me the platform to share some of my story a little bit more to your listeners. So thank you. No problem. And so I did 10 years with the Prince George's County Police Department. And on March 13 of 2016, at the time I had been dating Ja'Kai Coulson, who was working as an undercover police officer with our narcotics unit. And on this particular day, I was in full uniform responding to our headquarters where I was working a special assignment. Our headquarters is located, was located on Barlow Road off of 202. And he had an assignment, it was a Sunday. He had an assignment as well. He had a no knock warrant. It was an overtime assignment with the SWAT guys and it was going to be uh, in Oxen Hill. Okay. Uh, This particular morning I was rushing, he was rushing and we had ordered some food He said, you know what, just go ahead and go. I'll pick up the food and I'll drop it off at headquarters on my way down to my assignment in Oxon Hill. And I said, fine, no worries. We're both going in our separate separate ways, knowing that we're going to meet up at headquarters so he can drop off this food. And as I'm heading to headquarters, I turn on my radio for the area that I'm in. And I immediately start hearing what sounds like a detective from headquarters yelling for more units to respond, that there's an active shooter situation at headquarters. Uh, It was the Ford brothers. They have been a problem house, according to my knowledge. We've had several calls there for disturbances and other things. And on this particular day, Michael Ford, he wanted suicide by cop. So he decided to go to our headquarters and start shooting at our headquarters while his two brothers were recording him off of their cell phones. So as he's shooting at the police station, you know, you keep in mind that our headquarters houses our chief command staff, some civilians, detectives, specialty units. I mean, it's a really busy place. Right. Not only is he shooting at the actual station, but he's also shooting at passerbys. Because right across the street from headquarters there on Barlow Road, there's a shopping center and it's also a residential area. So anybody that's driving by, anybody, he's just shooting. So at that point, as he's shooting at the station, it would make it quite difficult for everybody to shoot back at him. Because like I said, the background would have been a shopping center in a residential area. So you have to be really strategic with how you want to approach the situation and the officer's were essentially barricaded inside of headquarters trying to figure out how do we address this situation. Right. Well, I'm obviously I'm going towards the fight. I put my lights and sirens on. I start going there. And the first thing that comes to my mind is Jakai. 
And I thought about him, obviously, because I know that he was heading there to drop off some food for me. And I'm also aware of the fact that he's in an unmarked vehicle. Therefore, he doesn't have a dispatch radio. He doesn't know what's going on. And in my mind, I was like, what if he's already there and he's just like sitting duck in the parking lot with my food while this person is actively shooting at the station? So I immediately call him and I have him on speakerphone on one hand as I'm driving with my other hand, just rushing there. And I'm talking to him, trying to keep the calmest voice that I possibly can. Like, hey, just get out of the area. There's an active shooter. It's a signal 13 for us means everybody come. We need help. And like most of us would, Jakai, he responded to the fight. As he was heading there, he was listening to me talk to him. He was kind of like, what? What's going on? What's going on? I'm like, hey, there's a shooting. Just please get out of the area. What ended up happening is Jakai's unmarked vehicle was Bluetooth compatible. And I remember hearing what sounded like 13 shots. So I guess Jakai confronted the suspect. He saw him. He jumps out of his car and fires at the suspect about 13 rounds, one of which struck the suspect. It hit him, uh, his belly. It went through and through. Okay. And it put the suspect down. Um, at that point, Jakai kept running for cover. And that's when I turned the corner and I heard the shots. And at this point, I'm still trying to make contact with him. I'm like, babe, like, where are you? Like, just get out of the area. And I heard the shots. And it's an unexplainable feeling to know when something just happened to someone that you care about. Mm, yeah. And at that moment, I am, I don't know why I had my windows down. It was a rainy Sunday and I had my windows down. And I was looking for him. Yes, I was looking for the suspect, obviously, but I was looking for Jakai. Like, where, like, I was just talking to him. Now I heard 13 shots. Now I don't hear him. Right. And my heart just sunk. Like, where is he? And as I'm driving towards the area and I'm getting closer, I turn my lights and sirens on and I just, I heard him. I heard Jakai screaming, police, trying to identify himself. And when I looked, I saw him. Uh, at that point, full panic. Uh, you know, fight, flight, freeze. And I just, the first thing that came to my mind is I have to, I have to protect him. Like I have to shield him because he was getting fired on. So I backed my car up, you know, doing everything I was trained to do. I backed my car up in a 45 degree angle to shield him, you know, realizing that in the crown Vic, the front part like houses most of the metal. And then I got out the car I got on the radio and I said, stop shooting at him. This is a police officer. Please stop shooting at him. And when I got out and I, I shielded him with my body and I pointed my weapon to see who was firing and I just saw police officers. So at that moment, I holstered my weapon and I held him. And as I'm holding Jakai, he's still trying to identify himself by yelling police, police. But at this moment, he's choking on his blood and his eyes are rolling back. And I just remember being like on my hands and knees and I'm just holding him in my arms and I'm just looking at him. And I was like, baby, I got you. Like, I got you. And at that moment, he stopped identifying himself and he just looked at me and then he closed his eyes. And there was another officer there. We're trying to find out where he was hurt. And we're like, fuck it, let's just take him to the hospital. So we take everything out of the back of my cruiser, put Jakai in the back seat. And I drove what felt like forever 
to Prince George's Hospital. And by the time we got there, the chief came to me and said, you know, Marion, Jakai is gone. However, uh, I know that Jakai's last breath was out there on the grass. He didn't make it past that. Despite all of our efforts, uh, there was another officer that was doing chest compressions and was in the backseat with Jakai. He never stopped doing chest compressions on him. However, Jakai was Jakai was gone. Now, to ask you a question, the, the crossfire, we know, and again, for the most part, no other officer is going to, you know, directly fire on another officer, knowingly fire on. Was this a, a matter, in your opinion, where the, where it was just, you know, you, you just lose that sight alignment and sight picture, maybe, that the, um, that other officer had that shot him, or it was just, he came up and he's lumping him in with the suspects because of maybe what he might have had on or, you know what I mean? Or just, you know, we in that, like I said, that flight of fight. I mean, in your, and I'm asking in your opinion, cause I yeah. was not there and sure. I heard about it. And it, like I said, we were working that day and, you know, we always call that part of PG County, Southeast PG, right? Because right. you know, I was right on the border yeah. of Southeast. So, yeah. And I'm not laughing at the situation, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like, whatever happens over there usually creeps its way, you know, into DC or back or whatever. So in your opinion, what, you know what I mean? What have you learned about, what have you learned about the actual, you know, friendly fire incident as far as what actually occurred? Uh, the only thing I can say, honestly, is I would never know what Officer Kraus saw, what he felt. I, I have no idea, and I can't speak on it. I can sit here and quarterback the whole situation until I turn blue in the face, and it's not going to serve me because the situation's happened. However, what I do know in my heart, or what I what I believe in my heart, is that at no moment did Officer Krause wake up that morning thinking he was going to kill Ja'Kai David Wilson? Right. Right. I don't think it was done in any intentional manner. What I believe is that in those moments when we have to respond, we do. And we tunnel vision, our desire to want to be, you know, the hero or whatever the case may be. Right. You just, you respond how you respond. However, yeah. I don't know what he saw. I don't know what he felt. I don't know what went through his mind. That would be a conversation to potentially have with him. But what I do know in my heart is that Krause had no intention of waking up that morning to kill Ja'Kai. No, I, I don't believe that in my heart. And I, I have also learned forgiveness in that right. aspect because I do forgive Krause. Right. Did they leak any of the grand jury? Did, did he go? He went to a grand jury, right? He did. However, I didn't take part of any of that stuff. I actually left the country after everything for some time. I didn't get involved in any of the, the stuff, so I don't. I don't even know. Okay. So, mm -hmm. what, what's the af aftermath? And again, I'm gonna speak on the PTSD part of that. Um, it, I know that's. Listen, we all say as as police, former police, what, whatever, retired police law enforcement, every time you go out there, you, you add a bit of post-traumatic stress disorder to to your lifestyle, right? It, and it happens. You see it in, um, I guess, your fail, some failed relationships. I can speak on that. I can, you know, it causes uh, 
couple of my relationships to fail because quickly, like I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would run, right? I'd be running around the bed, you know, with, with my gun. And, and at this point, I can even say it. One, one night I fired my gun several years ago. That was my first shooting, but and it worked out okay. But nobody wants to get help and nobody wants to really say, and I always said this, especially as a minority police officer, because especially as a male, and I know as a female also, but you know how it is. You do not want to actively seek help because you you are branded as crazy, unfit, or, you know, the department, the first thing the department does is, hey, again, give me that badge and gun, and I need that, and then they put you aside. And you really still don't get the help you want because, like I said, Usually you sat down with, um, you know, and I'll say it, an, a, an old white therapist, um, doctor, whatever, right, that, that has no clue for, for the most part of what the hell goes on out there on that street. And the first thing, and I, and I think we discussed this um, before, the first thing they always ask is, are you suicidal or homicidal? Because that checks the list to get them off the hook as far as saying, well, he said it or he didn't say it or she didn't say it, so we good, you know, and, and it takes the liability off the department. So when did you, did you have, and I, and I guess like not did you have, but when did your, that aftermath of like PTSD start, start hitting you? I think it's been, like you said, like you said, every time you go out there, you kind of have that. And I also feel like with any profession, not just first responders, but in life, everybody's going to go through trauma and grief. So I believe that a lot of times, you know, there are things that happened even in my youth that probably had triggered some PTSD. And maybe that's why I chose a profession in law enforcement, you know, because of the things that I saw. However, when you're on the job and you start seeing things, you start seeing things, it, it does, it piles up. Right. It piles up until you literally explode. And right. I think we spoke about this before, or I don't know where I mentioned it, um, but I'll say, uh, you know, I had been fantasizing with suicide for a long time when I became a first, when I became a police officer. I think after like my second year being a police officer, I would literally come home, look at the barrel of my gun and be like, I'm going to wrap my mouth around this gun. I'm not going to work tomorrow. Like I'm, I'm done. Like I can't do this no more, you know, yeah. because of the, the hate that you get from all sides of the spec, mm -hmm. right? Not being... Uh, respected within your within the profession and then going out trying to help civilians and, and citizens that don't want you or don't like you because of the uniform and it's like man I'm I'm tired um, so I fantasized with it however I never fully made any attempts until this is the straw that broke the camel's back for me March 13 2016 losing my beloved, losing my profession, losing what I felt like was my identity. My entire life was flipped upside down. That was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And in March of 20, not March is when it happened. September of 2016 is when I had my actual suicide attempt. And that was due to the pile up of a lot of post-traumatic stress, right. uh, depression, anxiety, and a host of other things, you know? What's it, what saved you that day? Um, my family and friends, for whatever reason, I don't know why I chose to go to the Dominican Republic. It was a week in September. I decided to go by myself on this trip. And I knew that on the last day, 
of that trip, I was going to have my attempt. Maybe in my mind, I didn't want to have to do it stateside so that my families wouldn't have to deal with me. Like, I really don't know what was going on exactly at that time and what my thought process was. However, I had the attempt. I sent a suicide note to my best friend through like WhatsApp because it's like international. She ends up locating, um, you know, my family through Facebook, which they then contact the hotel to get security, to get police, to send me back to America. And here I am. Wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad you, uh, glad you made it. Um, Cause you definitely inspired me. Cause I told you how, you know, I, I remember that day, like it was yesterday and it's just kind of powerful and amazing that we connected on that level. And, you know, I can say this and I'm, proud to say it at this point when when you go yeah i had suicide attempts most 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 men (laughs) most people will not admit that because of you know again that strength that we supposed to have right Mm -hmm. but i will sit there with you and say um probably two or three times same thing here same thing i knew right it was just how do I do it without making it look a mess? You know what I, you know what I mean by that, right? Like, right, because we always want to kind of justify, like, okay, how do I do this? Making sure that my family's taken right. care of. How do right. I make it look like an right. accident? How right. do I put my head in a plastic bag to not leave right. such brain matter all over the place? Exactly. Oh yeah, it's like we try you know? to really plan it out. Right. Mm-hmm. To be to be clean with it, where your family gets, you know, it's like. Uh, you know, you let, you're going to let them down on it, but it's like, I want to go as, you know, go that easier route. With as, them. If, as if there was such a thing. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. Right. Cause and you're feeling not. like such a burden. You're like, I'm just a burden to them. Yeah. But that However. pain, right. Mm-hmm. That pain. And that's what I, that's what I try to tell people. And that was probably a large portion of me even doing a podcast was, we never get a voice for the most part. Our law enforcement first responders never get a voice. It's always pretty much the media's voice or a PR person that works for the department that is, I always say that's part of the media's voice also. So when we get a chance to like express that pain, and I'm talking about real, real pain, because even though it's emotional, it becomes physical. And you know that it's, it's like, Jesus, man, it's like you broke a leg or two, right? So I'm glad we we connected. And I told you, whatever we got to do to to work together to kind of put this in a forefront, especially for minority officers. Um, again, any officer or first responder that needs help, they can, I'm sure, I want you to give all your information for Absolutely. your nonprofit as soon as Absolutely. I finish. But I, like, People don't understand like how many times you, you know, again, we, you know, we choose a career, right? We choose this career, but you don't know it's going to be as bad (laughs) as it is when you get out there and you're like, oh, right. I wasn't ready. You know, yeah, I give my life for this because I, you know, I put that oath out there, but I didn't know the in-between was going to be as bad. You know what I mean? It's almost like we were rather and, and i don't and i don't want to say this like like i'm not giving um i guess 
you know, to support what you went through with that, with your car. But you know what I'm saying? It's almost like to die in a gun battle is, and I, and you know what I mean when I say this, it's okay as opposed to the other stuff. You know, you, you, like I can go on a shooting, but it's like the other stuff that we get, or you get in between the job from management, mm-hmm. from the citizens, from, you know, some of your own coworkers. It, you know, you're like, jeez right damn just let me go out here and do my job i did not know all the other stuff was connected with that and then we just don't in my opinion not not near department i've ever worked for because like i said i worked for two but um just talking to different officers and different departments there's not enough mental help available they just and you know what I'm saying. It's not enough. You once it's, once your incident is over, and especially if it's okay for them to say, yeah, yeah, well, okay, all right, well, there's no liability for us, then you kind of cast aside. And you know that. And then there's no support. And people wonder why so many officers are killing themselves um, and especially have killed themselves over the past two years. So with that, tell me a little bit about your... Um, your foundation and your group. So what happened after my incident, as I mentioned before, I had the suicide attempt and I did try to actively find help. I Googled, try to find grief groups and all sorts of things. And what I found is that there is a lack of services as far as what I could find during my time of research. So what I decided to do was do the work for myself. I started my healing journey. And what has worked for me is a lot of holistic practices, mindfulness, meditation. I use the water as medicine. I'm a surfer, swimmer. I like to get on a boat and sail or go fishing. And a combination of that and breath work and all those things is what has saved me as well as working out and being active. So and recognizing kind of what works for me and the tools that have helped me cope without me having to put anything actually inside my body. as far as like medications and uh, self-medicating and things of that nature, I decided, you know, this would be really awesome to give back to my peers, like heavy, like hard, like, how does that look? And I said, you know, what don't, what if I could offer them retreats, like for first responders, you know, retreats for um, responders, first responders that are maybe even dating each other or married to each other, because I know that we are not diff- we are not easy to be with. Um, <laughs> right, you yeah. know, it's not easy right. to be to be with us. So, I was like couples retreats and all these things started kind of going through my head, and I wanted to make it a nonprofit. Although there will be some out of pocket expenses, I know that there I know that there's money out there for us. I know that money can be raised, and I know that financial stress is also a big thing for a lot of us. So I started a nonprofit called Shield Us. Uh, that's kind of also recognizing how I shielded Jakai during his last moments. And Shield Us also stands for self help in every law enforcement department. And Shield Us app because. You know, hopefully in the future, I'll be able to even create an app out of it. And what I do is I offer wellness retreats. I do peer support. I do trainings, presentations, and I facilitate groups. Everything from mental fitness to coping skills to suicide awareness and prevention, um, all those things, kind of just a whole package of wellness. And I'm also trying to get any first responder that has any type of 
credentials in whether it's yoga or Reiki or Qigong, whatever it is, if you have any of those skills and you've been doing the work and you want to be part of the team and you want to go out there and help us, man, there's much work to do. There's so much work to do. And so with my nonprofit right now, I have partnered up with a rehabilitation program here in Deerfield Beach, Florida, that's called Shatterproof. Uh, the big rehab, it's FHE Health. And within FHE Health, they have a specialty program called Shatterproof. And that is specific for first responders and first responders from the U.S. and abroad. I know we had uh, folks from Australia and Canada, first responders from everywhere come. And they're literally living inpatient here in Deerfield Beach in the apartments for 30 days um, or depending on each circumstance. And I facilitate groups there on behalf of Shielders. So the morning groups are like from 9.15 to 12.15. And then the afternoon groups are from 2 to 4. And okay. right, yeah, so right now I'm working at the rehabilitation program. And these first responders are coming in there dealing with substance abuse disorder wow. and mental health. So yeah. it's a really, really, I mean, honestly, Kenny, I didn't even know this program existed. I was doing a presentation and the host of who sponsored the presentation, she came up to me. She's like, man, you need to come to Shatterproof and talk to our guys. And I'm like, what's that? And when I went over there and talked to the guys, they really liked me. And they were like, you know, we could really use a group facilitator like you. Uh, could you come on and, you know, we'll partner up with your nonprofit and all this. And of course, uh, that's an amazing, amazing opportunity. Since I've been there, I remember the first month that I worked there it was about 15 first responders. And now they're up to like 50 and they're growing. And we're talking about, you know, fire, EMS, correction, police, some dispatch, and they're coming from everywhere. And every single person that has gone through the program has said, this needs to be like almost mandatory. Yep. And I'm like, absolutely. Yep. Because ideally what I'd like to be is proactive instead of reactive. However, as me and you both know, there's a lot of red tape that comes with that. And there's a lot of politicking and it's a lot of convincing and it's a lot of you know, we're fine. We got an EAP program. They're fine. Right. We have a doctor. Exactly. We're good. Exactly. We don't need any help. And then, right. you know, it's also like the trust factor. Like, well, who are you? Like, how do I know how, you know, credible you are? So it's a lot of red tape, but we're not going to stop. I'm not going to stop. So now what I do on top of facilitating the groups is a lot of, um, I do a lot of traveling and I do presentations all over. I just did a presentation in Atlanta with their EMS conference. So that was fire and EMS guys and gals. And I do a whole presentation. I share my journey from tragedy to triumph and how you too can do this. But we have to talk about it. We have to normalize these conversations. And that doesn't mean that because you can't go up to your sergeant and be like, yo, LT or Sarge, you know, I'm feeling depressed today. If you don't feel comfortable doing that because you know the minute you say that, they're going to give me your <laughs> give gun, me give me your badge. Yeah. They're yeah. going to send out that email. You suspended yeah. for a whole whatever. Yeah. You know, if you don't feel comfortable doing yeah. that, that doesn't mean that you still can't do that. Like, we yeah. don't have to go to help right here we don't have to go to from a to b to get help there's c d e f g there's there's help and you know you don't have to go to that place but then again it's like you don't know what you don't know so that's why i always promote myself i promote shatterproof shield us there are resources and what we're trying to do is grow and if there's other organizations that are doing the same thing i personally don't believe in working in silos we're all we we all have the same goal so it's power in numbers and it's time to raise awareness. No longer can our invisible scars get overlooked just because you can't see my fracture on an x-ray. Like you have no idea what I'm going through. You don't know what my nightmares and my sleep and my life is looking like. 
you know, and I think that's uh, that's unfair. But we also have to self-regulate and be able to advocate for self. Yeah, who are you telling? So quickly, I, I know you're going through stuff with the uh, with your old department. Um, you you want to hold on to that, or you want to, you know, give a glimpse of? Kind of... Oh, we could talk, we could talk about. Hey, man, I'm an open book. Okay, it's, already, it's all, all out right. there. It's, it's chess, right. not checkers, and I like to believe that I put myself out there ahead as much as I could. Um, but yes, my. You know, my, my thing about it is I started to realize while I'm facilitating these groups is that I'm telling these first responders, like, man, you guys need to advocate for yourselves. You need to go out there and say that you need help. You need to get the help. You need to normalize and all this stuff. And I realized, Bev, you haven't advocated for yourself. Like you were, you know, that wasn't right how my situation was handled. And so I reached out to Tracy Wilkins and I literally just Googled her. Like, what, what do I, I don't have her contact. Like, what, I don't know these people, you know. I Googled NBC4 News. I looked up the, you know, reporters. I saw her name there and I saw her email and I sent an email just kind of just, just throwing it out in the wind. I'm like, is she really going to respond to me? Like, she probably gets a million tips a day. Like, she's right. really going to listen to me? And in the subject line, I put Ja'Kai Colson shooting. And almost immediately she calls me and she's like, you know, how, how fast can you make it to Maryland? And I'm like, right now. And I bought a flight. I went. We, I literally flew in just for the interview, and I flew back. Um, and the purpose of it, as I've said before, you know, yes, the, the pension, that matters. I need to know. Uh, I want to know why. However, you know, Kenny, I've lived with poverty. I've lived with suicide. My fight is, is, is not really no longer for me, but it's for those that are suffering in silence still. And it's for that next first responder that's going to go through something traumatic and not get the help that they deserve because they might, they might actually complete their suicide. They might not actually make it. And they're going to need the pat on the back. They're going to need that money. They're going to need the accolades. They're going to want that award. They're going to want that stuff. They're going to want that support. So no, that's who I'm fighting for. I already lived through it. You see what I'm Absolutely. saying? Like I already went through the suicide. I was already practically homeless in Florida. Like, you know, I get I'm, it. I'm figuring I, I now my point, my purpose is to be the vessel for those that can't speak, whether it's because they're still on or they're so caught up in it that they don't even see that they have a problem and they're self-medicating and they're going home with suicidal ideations. They're going through divorce. They're getting uses of force. It's for them. It's for us. Definitely. Definitely appreciate that. And I definitely understand it like 100%. And that's why I said I will be so happy to speak with you at any event, whenever you want, you know, if you ever need me to speak on that, you know, that side you know, of, like I said, minority, you know I, the black man. You know what my mind is, my, my wheels are spinning because I do, uh, we do have these conferences and we do these panels and we do a lot of things for women in uniform and things like that. However, now you have me thinking something needs to be done for maybe, um, you know, black indigenous people of color or maybe something for you know men of color or something like you got my wheels turning so kenny you can't don't say <laughs> nothing like that to me because i'm gonna make it happen okay no this is we're my gonna fight. go to prince george's county or we're gonna go to dc or somewhere and we're gonna yeah. hold a conference and it's gonna yeah. really we're gonna try to bring in you know people of color or, or men whatever the case may be whatever the population is that needs to be brought all of us you know we're all humans going through these human emotions that are valid human emotions during traumatic events and getting overlooked and that's not fair you don't treat people like that yeah so, I, I mean i'm with you i'm 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 there because quickly 
it was a couple of years ago. We had an event at the at the uh, DC Police Academy, and it was post. It was based on post traumatic distress. Um, I'm sorry, post traumatic, you know, distress disorder and all that. But what happened was the people that came in and spoke to us. I mean, no offense. It's a white female. It's a white male, and it was a white um, paramedic. And again, I, I'm not making this about color, but when I finally had a, let's say had enough, but I, I kind of stood up because we, everybody was kind of giving their, you know, their little, in, you know, their spill on what had occurred to them or whatever. And I, I kid you not, like after I finished and I wouldn't get into it too much, but I had people in there crying right? and I'm not laughing, but you know how we deal with stuff. I had yeah. people in there crying when I told him the story about my two shootings, you know, the one with the first one, the teenager and the second one, whatever. But now, because I was trying to, you know, make it that way. But afterwards it was kind of like, man, like, dude, as, as a black dude, we don't tell, and he's, you know, all officers in there. And they were like, we don't really tell our stories because we have to be strong for everybody. And you know what I mean by that? It's, you know, it's that, you know, as a female of, of 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 color, but for black men, oh man, you cannot whisper those words. But I just felt it was because, like you said, if you can help somebody to not do it or kill themselves or commit suicide, or you know, you wake up, you hear it, and you're like, "Hey, officer, you know, such and such, you know, blew his head off last night." And you're sitting there like, "Damn, I just talked to him." That's why every every time I did field training, every officer, we had a few of them involved in shootings afterwards, and I always reached out, and you'd be surprised by the lack of support that they got after they went home. And one of the guys, he was miserable. He was in a fatal probably about a year ago. Mm-hmm. He was miserable. And it was like clean, good shooting, but he was miserable because he was like, I don't know what to do. Nobody's reaching out to me. They sent me to the clinic. After the clinic, I just got to come here once every two weeks. And then that's it. Like, you know what I mean? There's no follow-up. There's no, hey, come on, let me get you out. Let's do this. It's just, this happened. We're going to make sure the department is good. You didn't violate any rules or policies. And we're going to put you back on the street as soon as possible. Because if you don't go back on the street, we're going to try to retire you. And I think I think people, and especially officers, all officers deserve better than that if they're willing to put their lives out out on the uh, on the line. So absolutely, absolutely. You know. And what's happening is, I will say this: that we're on a wave right now. I believe, as far as mental health is concerned, and bringing awareness to first responders and how to provide services. Um, I am happy to say that there are a couple of departments that I have come in contact with in my journey of presenting and kind of being in this world now, providing services where they are actually doing great work. You know, they are working on their peer support teams. They're establishing those relationships with behavioral health contracts and other places and things of that nature. However, there are still some, a lot of police departments and first responder agencies everywhere that are still in that old school mindset. And no longer can we live in those days because we have to humanize the entire experience so that we then can put on those uniforms and treat the citizens with that same respect. But if you're you're housing me in this 
academy. You're teaching me like, rah, rah, be this and don't talk about your emotions. That's weakness and all this stuff and all this stuff. And then I go out there. Now I'm going to, I'm going to behave that same way out there. Cause yep. you, you just, you just created a monster, right? Like <laughs> exactly. I'm out here, you know what I mean? I'm yep. going home. I don't yep. care. And yep. I'm not empathetic. Damn, like, damn that. Yep. I need to go home. Like, okay, but wait a minute here. Cause there are some times where you can use that verbal judo. That could be a conversation. We didn't have to go hands on. However, you know, it's being proactive. As I mentioned, uh, my goal, what I've always wanted to do is just kind of even go into the academies and provide some holistic practices and do a week of that, or, you know, give them like a taste, give them tools, let them know, like, this is how you can handle. These are some resources. If you do start seeing signs within yourself or in one of your peers and even going into in-services. I mean, Kenny, when I tell you, I've been knocking on doors. Once I found out my purpose. I've been knocking on doors. I've presented in front of chief associations. I've presented in front of different PDs and conferences and summits and you name it. If Bev is if Bev is given a platform, it's showtime. <laughs> you hear me? Hey, I, you know, you I'm not pulling up to the table. I am the table. Like That's I have some, I have something to say. Right. And I'm here to just let people know what's out there because we also have to we have to take care of ourselves. We can't just allow people we can't just expect someone to ask me for help or want to give me help you know i hold no expectations you know but if i am in need of help and i ask my sergeant my lieutenant and they're not giving me or they're just doing the checking off the boxes you know what i mean so that they look good i have to know what resources are out there and that's what i want to do i want to let people know what's available what's out there i'm out here shatterproof is out there shield us is out there you know kenny and is out there you know like we need That's to it. raise awareness and normalize the conversations normalize I, these conversations absolutely and i appreciate that um i definitely do like i said it was a purpose there was a reason and purpose we uh linked up right so yeah. i'm with you and i'm gonna i'm going to um get this episode out as soon as possible, because I, I got a lot of people that were like, hey, 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 I want to hear what she has to say. Because, oh. you know, that incident kind of, yeah. you know, it, was, it died down quickly. And then everybody was like, hey, what happened? It and really so, did. You know and what I, I mean? I'm going to put it just, back out there. I'm going to put yeah, it out there. It was, uh, it was time, I guess. The You know, it's been six years or so. And it was just time in my heart if I would have responded to kind of wanting to raise awareness of like, hey, how come I got treated this way? Right. If I would have tried to have done this years ago, I would have responded emotionally. And that's not really the mind you want to approach this with. So it took some years for me to get my mind right. And I'm still, I'm on a journey, forever going to be on a journey. Right. However, I'm able to now approach this with more of a wise mind and be more level-headed and say, hey, let's, this needs to be a conversation. And my goal at this point, as I mentioned, is to be the vessel for others, to be the voice for those officers that are still on, those first responders that are still on, that are maybe too afraid because they, they're going to lose their positions or whatever. And however vulnerable I have to be, then that's what I'm going to do. So that's my that's my whole fight at this point. Well, I appreciate that. And um, before we disconnect, tell everybody how they can uh, connect with you. I am not a difficult person to get in contact with. <laughs> I will say that. Um, I am on Instagram, so please follow us on Instagram. I'm going to give you my Instagrams. I have two, so you can follow my personal one, which is underscore Bevy Bev. And that's underscore B-E-V-Y, B-E-V. And then, of course, the nonprofit Instagram is 
shieldus.app. So shieldus.app. And on there, you can get in contact with me as far as my email address and DM me if you have any questions. I'm not a difficult person to get in contact with. Ah, yep. And you follow up. So I appreciate that. That's right. And also the website, if you want to visit the website, it's www.shieldus.app.app. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to be running your, um, running this interview on, on the, uh, pod, uh, of course the podcast, but on my Instagram and my Facebook immediately. So once I do that, I'll, you know, I'll send you all the notifications and all. So we can, again, we can link up again and listen, I appreciate you taking out time to tell me everything that, uh, I thought I was going to hear it even better. And I'm sure you help somebody. And I always say, if it's one person, one person that uh, we help or you helped in this 30, 40 minutes, I appreciate that. And, uh, and, and we did our job for the day, Kenny. Hey, 100%, right? That's it. Yeah, that's it. I appreciate you. And thank you for reaching out so I can be a part of this. Okay. Giving me the platform. Thank you. And all thank right. you to all the listeners. I hope you guys follow and looking forward to meeting you all. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Kenny. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye now.